All right, grab your Bibles and turn it to the book of 1 Corinthians. We are in a, in a series through Genesis at the moment, and we're doing it in little two-week blocks. So we do two weeks and then week off, two weeks, another week off, and then we'll do another two weeks as we work our way as a bit of an overview through the book of Genesis. Um, and this is our sort of little gap week, as it were. And we're going to just reflect on some um, thoughts at the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So grab your Bibles and turn there. We're going to read it together. It'd be great, I think, if once you've found it, stand to your feet and we'll um, read it as we stand before the Lord and hear what he has to say to us this morning. So just a short passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. When you've got it, stand on your feet. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting from verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Let me just include there, sisters. It's a gender-neutral word that's there in the original language. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's God's word. Why don't you take a seat? Listen, most traditional sermons are structured in such a way as to explain the scriptures by pointing to the you know, various ways that it might be constructed and the logic that it follows and the truth that it illustrates. And then a sermon usually applies those observations and those structures and those illustrations, those truths, it applies those in a way that hopefully helps you connect your faith with your daily life. But today I'm going to start with the application. All right? And that normally comes at the end. We usually just sort of tack that on a little bit at the end. But I'm going to start with that today. Um, so here's the application of the sermon you haven't heard yet. I want to start with what Paul, the author of this, wants you to do with the truth that he's going to unpack. All right, this is what Paul wants you to do. It better be what I want you to do. It better be what I'm going to do. And finally, we're going to see sort of um, if we can make some comment and some observations around why doing this is a good idea. Okay, so that's where we're going to. We start with the application we're going to see if we can follow Paul's logic as to why he thinks that's a good idea. And then we're going to reflect a little bit on, well, okay, is there a, a reason why we should really obey this or not? 
Okay, so hopefully we're going all back to front. That might mean that instead of 45 minutes, we'll be done in 20. Yeah, that probably won't happen either, but... All right, so here it is, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. I want you to find it in your Bible. I want you to follow along with me. This is the only direct command in this entire passage. You know, there are all sorts of things that you can find in Scripture. There are, can be just illustrations. There can be uh, statements of fact, statements of reality, statements of truth. And then there can be explicit commands. You know, do this. Don't do that. And in the passage that we just read, there's only one. There's one explicit statement that Paul says, I want you to do something. So we should underline that. Okay? Physically, go ahead and do that if you'd like to. Write it in a notebook. Commit it to memory. This is something that the Scriptures is asking me to do. So what is it? Well, it's there. Chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Consider your calling. That's the only explicit command. There are other, a couple of other sort of implicit commands, which basically means something that Paul would like us to do. He implies that we should do it. We're going to get to those a little bit later. But this is the only place where there's a very explicit and direct Command. There's no if, buts, or maybes about this. There's no way that we can sort of read, consider your calling, and sort of go, I wonder if he really wants us to do that or not. Yeah. We're not left with any sort of wonderings about this. There's no conditions attached to that. So he doesn't say to you, you know, if you meet these conditions, then you should consider your calling. He doesn't say, if, you, um, if you've been really good this week, consider your calling. He just says, we need to consider our calling. There's no excuses attached to it. Just do it. Right? Just do it. So there is actually, um, we, we won't get all geeky and start talking about you know, verbs. and well, There's an action word here, all right? There's an action word here. What is it? Everyone's um. It's been a long time since I was at school. It's consider. Okay? It's consider. That's something that you do. It's an action. He wants us to consider something. That's it. Bit disappointing, isn't it, really? Most of us want something to do with our applications, right? The application is there to tell us, how should I live, Chris? What, what should I do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and all the other days of the week? I mean, tell, tell me in your sermon, how should I live my Christian life? And here, Paul is actually just saying, don't go and do something. I just want you to think something. I want you to think about something. Application isn't always something we do. Quite often, in fact, more often than you might realize in the scriptures, the application to a passage is something you should think Something you should think about God. Think about God in this way. When you think of him, don't think of him like that. You need to consider God in this way. Or in this case, he's saying consider, and he's actually going to ask us to consider something about ourselves. Christians are thinking people. 
Christians are thinking people. Then we're doing people. It's why Paul would tell the Romans that we are transformed by the renewing of our to-do list. No. That's, that's usually where we want to go, right? I need to renew my to-do list. I need to reorder my priorities so that they reflect more of who I am as a Christian. Now, yeah, we get there eventually, but Paul says that's not how renewal comes. You can't renew your to-do list until you've renewed your mind, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your minds in Romans 12 and 1. Not the renewing of your to-do list. So right from the outset, we know that Paul wants us to apply this passage primarily by considering something. What does he want us to consider? It's not a trick question, it's there. Consider your calling, right? Consider your calling. That might might need a little explanation. So we're going to back up a little bit and we're going to see if we can wrap our heads around this term calling. Because here's the truth. If I say the word calling... Potentially, you might be thinking, if we surveyed the room, any number of things could be my calling to live in a certain place, could be my calling to do a certain job, my calling to marry a certain person, my calling to enter into ministry. There's any number of ways that we can maybe apply or interpret that word calling. Our job is to figure out what does Paul mean when he uses the word calling. That's what he wants us to consider. So let's jump back in the text a little bit. We'll stay in chapter 1, but we're just going to sort of back up a little bit and go a little bit earlier up into verse 18. So read with me. I'm going to highlight a couple of phrases that I think will give us a clue as to what Paul means when he uses the word calling, which then will help us to figure out, well, that's what we need to consider. All right, so let's go. Verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross, if you're an underlining person, I would underline word of the cross. That's an important phrase in this. For the word of the cross is folly. It's a bit of an old word, isn't it? We would just say stupid, foolish, um, ridiculous, makes no sense to us. The word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, so there's a word of the cross. Something about the cross in here. There's something about salvation in here. There's something about the sacrifice of God on the behalf of sinners in here. And he's saying that that message, the word of the cross, lands on people in different ways. Some people hear that message and they go, this is stupid. This is foolish. This makes no sense. This is ridiculous. And Paul says, when it lands on people in that way, those people are perishing. And then he contrasts it and he says, but to those of us who are being saved now. So we understand that this word of the cross has some type of saving power. 
It brings us into a relationship with God that rescues us. And Paul says when those people hear it, they hear the same message and it's not foolishness. It is the power of God. It's where the power of God rests and lies and is evident and is seen. So verse 19 says, For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discern of the discerning I will thwart, I will cancel, I will undermine. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul's saying there is a message of the cross. Some people think it's foolish. Others who are being saved, they see it as the power of God. And God has done this deliberately. Because the world in its wisdom has brought all of its wisdom and said, this is how you live a fulfilled life. This is how you live a a meaningful life. This is how we build ourselves up. And, And God says, that's cute. Right? He says, good try. You get a participation award. Except that God is not that condescending. That's probably what I would have said. God simply just says this, no, that's not where fulfillment is found. All your wisdom is foolishness. Here is the power of God. Here is wisdom. Here is salvation. And it's in the message of the cross. So in verse 21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the foolishness to the world's ears of what we preach, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who will believe. So we've got the word of the cross, which is the power of God, and we know that it saves. That's what we know so far. Verse 22, for Jews, will Jews demand signs? And Greeks, what do they look for? Wisdom. Verse 23, but we... Well, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. Which is a stumbling block to Jews, right? What are they looking for? Signs. That's a stumbling block. A crucified Jesus. That's not what Jews are looking for. Well, what about... Greeks, pagans, Gentiles, which we fall into the category of. What do we want? We want wisdom, right? We want stuff to make sense. Make this logical for us. Prove it. And God doesn't play that game either. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are, and here's the word, called. Now, the context of what he's been talking about is salvation, right? The word of the cross, the power to save, the wisdom of God. And now he's saying, if you believe that message, even though it's dismissed, 
a stumbling block to Jews, even though it's foolishness to Gentiles, if you believe this message, you are cold, he says. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God, this is an, a really interesting verse, the foolishness of God. Now tell me, is God foolish? No. Okay, so he's not saying God is foolish. But he's saying, even if God was foolish, even if God brought foolishness to the table, it's wiser than anything that men's got to offer. Even God's foolishness is better than our wisdom. And the weakness of God? Well, God isn't weak, we know that. But even the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's verse 25. So we know from what Paul has been talking about, as he's about to launch back into verse 26 now, where we started, we know that what Paul's driving us to do is saying, hey, listen, your calling is actually about your embrace of the message of gospel, which is foolish to so many people in this world. Your calling is actually about how God rescued you through the word of the cross, which is the power of God unto salvation. That's your calling. And so verse 26, when he says, all right, now consider your calling, brothers and sisters. That's what he's wanting us to consider. He's specifically asking us to consider how we were saved. In particular, he's asking us to consider the power of God in the gospel and how that reached into our pitiful existence to bring us life and hope and peace. How did that happen? And so his command is this, consider that. Now, the so-called wisdom gurus of this age will tell you that the path to enlightenment is to empty your mind. And that's wrong. I was trying to find a way to say that more carefully, but it's just, it's just wrong. All right? It's wrong. In fact, it's dangerous. We are human, physical, flesh and bone, but we don't live just in a human, physical and flesh and bone world. We, we live amongst the powers and the principalities of the air amongst spiritual worlds and spiritual realms that we don't see with the the flesh of our eye, it's dangerous to empty your mind. Paul says, don't empty your mind, fill your mind, right? But fill it with what? Fill it with the right things. Don't empty it. Don't sit there on a mountaintop with your legs crossed, humming, emptying your mind. Fill your mind. And fill it with the right things. More specifically, he says, consider these things. Now that word consider there, it has the connotation, the meaning. He's not saying, let your calling be some type of sort of passing thought that just sort of blows in with the breeze and blows back out again. He's not sort of just saying, you know, every now and again, just go, oh, gee, I wonder how God did that. I don't know. Let's move on. I mean, considering here really has the idea of meditation. Not the type of meditation that we just talked about, but the type of actual Christ-honoring, Christ-centered, Christ-exalting meditation where we fill our minds with Him. 
Meditate on these things. Consider these things. If you want to practice Christian meditation, rather than emptying your mind, it is the practiced art of focused attention, of fighting against the tyranny of all the distractions this world has. Maybe it's the little ding on your phone, the little red button on your phone telling you how many people think that you're important. Maybe it's a television that just never goes off because we can't bear the silence of a room. Maybe it's the radio which has to go on every time because we can't bear to be with our own thoughts. But there are a tyranny of distractions out there and they are waging war against our souls. And Paul says, no, stop and consider your calling. Fight against it and create space in your life and space in your world where you're dedicated to set aside to say, I am here to meditate on Christ and the gospel. It takes practice and it takes time. But that's our application. Consider your calling. And maybe you're wondering, well, what specifically about my calling should I be considering? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a really good question. (laughs) Funnily enough, that's exactly what Paul's going to talk about. So let's go to it, all right? Let's read it again just to refresh our memories. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Let me make a couple of observations about the little passage. First is this. We have a a, a depiction here or a a statement here about our not-so-surprising situation. Not many of you were wise, Paul says, according to worldly standards at least. Not many were powerful. And not many were of noble birth. That's how Paul starts. What should I consider, Paul? Paul says, guys, I want you to consider your calling. And we say, what should I consider? And he says, here's the first thing you should consider. And he looks across the room. And he looks in everyone's eyes. And he smiles a little bit. And then he just shrugs and goes, yeah, not many of you are wise. (laughs) What an inspiring start to the sermon. Paul, you really know how to lift us up and send us out to face the week. He doesn't finish there. That's not the end of his insult. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. And not many of you were privileged, as in not many of you were born of noble birth. Three things that this world honors, three things that this world elevates, three things that this world prizes and says, people who are those things are special people. All right? The wisdom of this world will set you up to be a guru in this world. And people will flock to you. People will sign up to your social media account. People will follow you on YouTube and you will be a millionaire. You will write books with the forwards from the best people. 
and people will buy them and they will bow down to your throne and they will say, what wisdom? But Paul looks at us and he says, not many of you like that. All, all the powerful, right? The elite, whether that's through physical strength or ability or on the sporting field or in their chosen field or whatever it might be, but the powerful, the ones who, who reign and rule, and the ones who have a voice of authority and the ones who are seen and the ones who are listened to, Paul says, yeah, yeah, they don't, I don't really see many of those people here either. Not many wise, not many powerful, not many of privileged birth, of noble birth. We have a saying, don't you? They're born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You heard that one? You know, you got a head start in life because of who your parents were. You got a head start in life because of your heritage. You got a head start in life because of your bank account at birth. That's why you're so successful. That's why you haven't had to, to face the battles like us battlers have and all those sorts of things. And we look at them. In Australia, we like to sort of just cut those sort of people down a little bit. But you know what? Secretly, most of us are thinking, oh, I wish we were that, actually. I wish I'd had a head start in life. In fact, I'm going to work hard, really hard, so that my children will have a head start in life. And Paul says, not many of you are like that either. What he's basically saying is that you're, you're all gospel nobodies. Unimportant in this world, weak in this world, underprivileged in this world. That's the first place we actually have to start. This is where Paul begins when he asks us to consider our calling. This is what we were called from, Paul says. Not many wise, not many powerful, not many privileged. Basically, Paul is saying that before God showed up, we were effectively nobodies, right? Paul wouldn't be happy with the usual way that this gets dealt with in our modern world. Because this isn't, in Paul's mind, a sympathy-seeking statement. We like sympathy-seeking statements. Facebook's half full of them. Guys, just got to be honest with you. I'm such a bad parent. And then we wait for all the people to comment, No, you're not. You're amazing. We look up to you. Maybe. We throw out these sort of negative statements in our world because it's a sympathy-seeking statement. I'm not very smart. Yes, you are. You're the most smartest person I know. Oh, am I? Oh, that's nice of you to say. I feel really weak today. Oh, no, you're strong. And so we throw these statements out, hoping that people will turn around and just go, that's not true. That's not true. We don't see that in you. And then they affirm us and they build us up and they strengthen us. And so our statements of sort of weakness become self-serving. Hoping that other people will cut them down and cancel them out and, and then pile up the praise on us. And we walk away from it just going, well, that worked. All right? False humility works every time. If what we're looking for is to be puffed up. That's not what this is. 
A sympathy-seeking statement is a comment made, either in real life, maybe on social media, that's intended to provoke as many people as possible to disagree with you by telling you how wrong you are, patting you on the back, singing your praises, right? Paul's not interested in that foolish game. Paul isn't even interested in sort of like a pity party. You know, we talk about a pity party where we all get around. Someone says, life is so hard for me at the moment. And six other people come around and pat us on the back and just go, yeah, it's hard for me too. And they go, you think that's hard? You should have seen how hard it was for me last week. And then somebody else goes, that's terrible, but... I had to walk through three feet of snow just to get to school and I had this much of a pencil. And then we just keep trying to outdo each other with just how rough life is for us at the moment. And it's a, it's a pity party, right? Paul's not interested in that game either. He's not sitting there trying to heap praises on us. He's not even trying to say, oh dear, look how bad things are for us. He just wants us to start considering the reality of who we are. And this is the reality. When when the world measures wisdom, most of us don't show up on the scale, right? We're not sort of those high-flying wisdom people. We're not those powerful people. We're not those privileged people. And Paul says, that's the point. That's the point of where it starts. He's not insulting anyone. He's not making a sly dig at anybody. He's simply calling it for what it is. Not many wise, not many powerful, and not many privileged. But here's where it's getting interesting. That's where we find ourselves, and then Paul quickly moves to God's surprising response to that. But God, there it is, one of my favorite little conjunctive words, right? This is what we're like, but God. But God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is foolish in the world. Why? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. Why? To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not in this world, to bring to nothing the things that are. God is deliberately working with us. He's deliberately working with us in our weakness. They're surprising, right? It's surprising to think that God would do that. Well, it might be for many, but if you've walked with God for a while, if you've experienced God for a little while, you shouldn't be surprised because this is very God-like behavior. This is very God-like behavior. It's what he does. We discover three things that God's done. With each of these actions, there's a connected purpose. God chose what is foolish. That's what God did. Why? To shame the wise. Those that stand in the world and puff themselves up and stand on their own wisdom, God undercuts it and he says, you know what I can do? I can take the least wise people in this planet 
and I can stand them with me in glory. And he shames the wise. God can, can look at those who call themselves powerful by their own merit, by their own training, by their own strength, and God says, well, you know what I can do? I can take the absolute weaklings of this world and they will stand with me in glory. And he shames the powerful and the strong. And God can take what is low and despised in this world and he can bring to nothing all the things that set themselves up and say, I am big in this world and I'm powerful in this world and I'm important in this world. And God says, well, look what I can do. I can take the nobodies of this world and the world will be changed. When God chose us, It wasn't like he was the captain of the school soccer team that had to choose second. Do you remember that? I was never made the captain of the the soccer team or the football team. But I can remember standing in a line of boys in lunch hour hoping to get picked to be on the team. Do you remember that? Maybe some of you can. Maybe you can think of a different circumstance of someone choosing a team. And there used to be two captains and they would stand at the front and all the rest of the hopefuls would stand on the side looking at them. Do you remember when I shared my lunch with you, buddy? Come on. You know. And there was a captain who got to choose first and there was a a captain who got to choose second. God isn't the captain who chose second and basically just went, well, looks like this is what I've got to work with. Yeah, because the first captain, he looks across the crowd and he goes, oh yeah, I'm taking that guy. I'm taking her. She looks fast. I've seen her play before. She's quick on her feet. Man, that guy can drill a goal from the halfway line and no one has a chance. And he, he chooses the best and takes the most powerful and the most skillful. And the second captain just goes, well, we'll do our best, guys. You know, that's not what God's doing. God chose first. And he deliberately chooses the kid who continually trips over their own feet. He, he, he deliberately chooses the kid who passes the ball to the other team. He, he chose me. I'm the guy who consistently scored three home goals every game. He could have chosen anyone he liked. And he chose you. You thought about that? God looked over all of humanity and he could have included anyone he liked and he included you. Not many wise, not many powerful, not many privileged. And he looked over them all and he said, I'll take all of those guys, thank you. God's got some big game plan in his mind. Choosing losers like us plays right into his strategy. What is it? What's the end game? Well, here it is. It's that we might boast in the right direction. It's that we boast in the right direction. We see it there, verse 29. So that, this is what God has done out of our surprising circumstances and the end result that Paul says is so that 
no human being might boast in the presence of God. So let's continue our analogy of the soccer team for a moment. If God's soccer team were filled with international all-stars, when the game's finally over and the team wins it, it would be easy for us and others to say, well, of course they won. Look who's on the team, right? That team's filled with international all-stars. That team is filled with experienced and skillful and excellent players. Of course the team won. But God's team isn't full of international all-stars. It's filled with losers like me who can't play soccer. I couldn't play it to save myself. So when our team wins, and let me tell you, it has, guess who gets the credit? When, when they look over the team and see us all still picking ourselves up off the ground and retying our shoelaces and adjusting our glasses, and they look at us and they go, that team won? Really? That team won? And someone says, yeah, look who's coaching. God gets the credit. That's the point, right? That's the point. God gets the credit. God gets the praise. God gets the glory. There isn't room for boasting on this team. It's not like we sort of stumble ourselves over the finish line and one of us can pick ourselves up and just go, we're finally here. I'm so tired for carrying the team. My legs are so weary because I've had to carry you guys across the line, you know? There's no room for boasting in this team. There's no room for any one of us to be able to say, well, I I knew we'd get there. We trained hard. We developed our skill. We we got it together. Yeah, we didn't, we, we left everything out on the field, guys, you know. There's no room for boasting there. This is actually all about God. When the full-time siren sounds across the galaxy, it will be painfully obvious why this team won. And everyone will be shouting the praises of the Lamb. So you may be thinking, well, this is still... Yeah, I'm hearing a couple of amens and a couple of come-ons. Thanks, Marty. But, But where do we fit into this, really, right? some good news here for us as well. Verse 30, read with me the last couple of verses. Because of him, he's he's pointing to our captain, right? Our lamb, our savior. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. You're in Christ Jesus. So when, when Jesus gets the praise, Paul's reminding us, you're not forgotten. Because you're in, you've been included into Christ Jesus, who became to us, he became to us wisdom from God. He became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as is written, now just before we said there's no room for boasting, right? But now Paul says, let the one who boasts, there is room for boasting here, guys. But let the one who boasts, 
boast in the Lord. Right? So before he said, there's no room for any human being to boast. But now he's saying, but listen, if you do boast, your only boast is Christ. There's no room for boast in ourself, but there's lots of room for boasting in Jesus because he has become our wisdom. He has become our righteousness. He has become our sanctification. He has become our redemption. We are being built into the image of Christ. We are growing every day more and more like him. He's changing us. And yeah, we were losers, but now we're brilliant by association. It really is one of those situations where you see people walking down the street and some you know, old couple and they've sort of lived years with each other and they've got that wry sense of humor with each other and they're wearing a shirt and the wife has a little arrow pointing that way and it says, I'm with stupid. You know? But that's not what shirt we're wearing. Ours has an arrow on it, but ours says, I'm with him. I'm with my Redeemer. I'm with my Savior. I'm with my sanctification. I'm with my righteousness. I'm with my wisdom. He's all of those things to us. And we become brilliant, but brilliant by association. That's the beauty of the gospel message that Paul wants us to grasp hold of today. God takes those who weren't wise, weren't powerful, and weren't privileged, and then he supplies the very thing we lack by giving us Jesus. And we become winners by association, not losers. Do you want wisdom? It's in Jesus. Do you want righteousness? It's in Jesus. Do you want sanctification? It's in Jesus. Do you want redemption? It's in Jesus. So where must all boasting go? Easy, right? Jesus. Why does this matter? Let's make this two minutes. Why does this matter? And this is how we're going to finish. Why, why is the command here, consider these things, consider your calling? The, the implied commands that I said earlier were there were the boasting in Jesus. Paul, Paul wants you to boast in Jesus. He's, he's implying that that's where your boast should be. But the only explicit command is consider these things. What we've been talking about, dwell on it, meditate it. Why does it matter? There's a whole bunch of reasons why it matters, but I'm going to just give you two, one minute each. First thing we'll do is this. Considering your calling, that not many were wise, but you're brilliant now by association with Jesus, will safeguard you against finding your identity in other people. Especially as a Christian. It's so prevalent, it's so common, that we as Christians struggle with senses of identity. Well, who are we really? And so then we start to attach our identity with other people. And usually we look for strong people and powerful people and people that we look up to. They might be famous people. They could be authors or preachers or pastors or people that we say, man, those people seem to have it all together. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attach my identity to them. Well, if we consider our calling... It safeguards against doing that. It's dangerous, right? Even in chapter 1 and verse 10, we didn't read this part. Chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul's already been correcting the Corinthians because he said to them in verse 10, 
What does it mean that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ? Or in chapter 3, Paul says to them, what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Aren't they servants through whom you believe? Does the Lord assign to each? And he goes on. He's correcting their thinking. He's saying, hey guys, you don't need to attach your identity to some celebrity. You don't have to attach your identity to some pastor or preacher or writer. Because God chose you. God's lifted you up, not them up. You're not good because of how good they are. You're good because of how good Christ is. So it safeguards us against finding our identity in other people. Here's the second thing it does. It safeguards us against finding our identity in our gifting. I'm important in this church because I've got an important thing to do. That's rubbish. I'm important in this church because I've got a lot to give. That's garbage. Your identity is not attached to your gifting. If you this morning think, I'm 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 a nobody because I don't think I've got anything to offer anybody, that's rubbish. And considering your calling, that I'm not very wise and I'm not very powerful and I've got no privilege, but Jesus looked at me and says, I want you. That's your identity. So consider your calling, brothers and sisters. You don't have to find your identity in all the sort of cesspools of this life somehow. Your identity is in Christ. He's chosen you and he's got a game plan in mind and he wants you with him. And everything that you lack, he says, I will give. I'll bring it. And at the end of the day, what do we do? We stand up and say, my boast... Well, my boast is in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your encouragement to us this morning. We we look at our own life. We we don't even have to look up up the road. We don't have to look at the person next to us. We just look at our own self in the mirror and we just go, yep, not many wise, not many powerful, not many privileged. And yet you've rescued us. The power of the cross has been at work You've chosen us and saved us and brought us into relationship with you and you've supplied our lack and you've given us Jesus. So Lord, help us to be obedient to this word. Help us to be people who consider our calling daily and rest in the identity that you've given us. Help us, we pray. We continue to be weak, but we look to you. Amen.